Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. This woman lived her formative years with no one to help her, but is remembered as the helper and teacher to one of the most inspirational women of all time. The end. Here at the beginning of the minicast, I should say that if you haven't yet listened to Episode 7, Helen Keller, you should stop here and go back and listen to the Helen Keller podcast. There's a lot in that show that will provide you the background for this show. All right, welcome to the minicast. When we were doing the Helen Keller podcast, we thought that it would be important to tell the story of Anne Sullivan Macy. Yes, because even though her life is completely intertwined with Helen's up to a certain point, has her own history, and we should spotlight that. So let's drop her into history. She was born in 1866. That year, Jesse James was robbing his first bank in Liberty, Missouri. The urinal is patented that year. Congress approves the nickel, which replaces the half dime. And Charles Elmer Hires begins bottling and selling root beer. All in 1866. And on April 14th of that year's in Feeding Hills, Massachusetts, Anne Sullivan is born. Except her name isn't really Anne. Her name is Joanna. Well, the Sullivan family was immigrants from Ireland. They left because of the potato famine. The decade from about 1846 to 1855, when those parents probably came over um, in that vast wave of immigration, a lot of Irish people settled in towns and they became laborers in factories and the Mm -hmm. women became servants. And that's just how it was. And most of them, like 85 percent of them were single adults that came during that wave, like fleeing to make money Mm -hmm. to send at home or whatever. But not only was this a, you know, a young couple, but they settled in an area, it wasn't a city at all, it was rural, and that was not very common for Irish immigrants of this time. They did not settle in town like everyone else, and mm-hmm. so they really didn't have a built-in Irish community the way that the factory workers did, so they were kind of isolated right. just from the get-go. Which probably didn't help their situation, as Alice Sullivan was uh, very frail and suffering from tuberculosis, and Thomas is listed as being unskilled and an alcoholic. They lived in a tied cottage, which means means that with the job came a little house to live in, if Mm -hmm. you're a farm laborer. And she describes this as kind of being idyllic, but I don't know how, I guess just running free and, Mm -hmm. you know, not being supervised because your mom was sick and your dad was working, but um, she would sneak into the family's house and touch their piano and stuff. It was totally forbidden for the farm laborer's Mm -hmm. children to be in there, but she would marvel at the nice things and the nice dresses the little girl that lived there had. And Mm -hmm. Annie developed trachoma right about now, which is... um, the main thing that got you booted out of the country if you came through Ellis Island, by the way. Oh. You ever see those, those, well, every time they show Ellis Island, they show the inspectors flipping people's eyelids back, mm-hmm. doing a swab. That's what they're swabbing for. And if they find it, you are on the boat back. Mm-hmm. They did not let you in. At the time, it was not treatable. Now, it's still widespread throughout the whole world. But if they catch it at the beginning, they just give you erythromycin. That's it. That's it. You could just go to the CVS and take care of it, whereas it was just a sentence of blindness, Blindness. basically, and still Mm -hmm. is in a lot of the world. Right. It's pretty common. It's caused by poor sanitation, so life at the Sullivan Casa may not have been all that pristine. No. 
Their mother did suffer from tuberculosis. One in five deaths were caused by tuberculosis. Wow. And so you could live for decades, though, is the thing. Mm. So you didn't want to put your life on hold. Right, because you had a lot of living that you could still do, but you're pretty so sure you knew what was going to get you. You got married end. and had children when mm-hmm. you were a woman and you had tuberculosis. I just can't imagine that helped. No. Well, and you know if you read books and they talk about someone died of consumption, this mm-hmm. is the same yeah, thing, right. tuberculosis and consumption. Right. So her mother died. And father began his descent into alcoholism. Spiraled down. He was an abusive father as well. Yeah, he also lost his job. And you know what happens if you lose a job and you have a tied cottage? You lose your house. house. They had to go live with relatives. Mm -hmm. (laughs) For a while, it was probably okay. So Anne is, let's just say, Anne is eight when the mom dies. Mm Mm-hmm. And Jimmy's Jimmy, four. her younger brother. Now he's also he's got a tubercular hip. That's a condition that he was born with. So, so the dad abandons them, and the relatives um, eventually adopt Sister Mary, who's the only one of the three children that is not disabled in some way. Right. And Annie and Jimmy, after two years of staying with these relatives, got taken. This is just kind of horrible. They're it's, ten and four, and they get taken to the Tewksbury Alms House, which is not a good place for kids. It's so horrible. And when they got there, the directors were going to separate them. Physically mm-hmm. going to separate them. Because Jimmy, out four, is too old to go with the babies. Right. The foundlings or the children of unwed mothers or whatever. Right. But he, so they were going to seriously just throw him into the men's area and mm-hmm. throw her into the women's area. And mm-hmm. I don't know what convinced them. But somehow Annie and Jimmy convinced the directors to let them stay in the women's area. Although Jimmy had to wear a pinafore <laughs> to preserve that. I'm like, I don't think anyone was fooled, uh, yeah. but whatever. <laughs> so Jimmy had to wear a pinafore, but he was allowed to stay with his sisters. Some shred of humanity. In the uh, yeah, and I, I think it, I think based on the rest of her life, I think Anne had probably had a lot to do with them staying together. I think she was a very convincing child. You know? yeah. She was very intelligent. And a lot of what we know about this part of her life comes from a little work of fiction that Anne was writing pretty much her whole life. And the disguises on everything are so thin. Like, for example, mm. the, the main character's name is Johanna Donovan Sullivan. Johanna Sullivan. Like Johanna Sullivan. Yep. She's from Seeding Hills. Seeding Hills. Hills. Yep. And the almshouse was called Dukesbury instead of Tewksbury. And so I believe, as do many historians, that we can largely assume these stories are pretty autobiographical. Mm -hmm. And she really never willingly spoke of this to more than maybe two friends, her life here. Um, That capacity of the almshouse was 500, but they were double that in there. You can imagine, double that. And here's who's in there. Is anyone not able to work went to the almshouse? Anyone Mm -hmm. able to work? Just because you were poor, you went to the workhouse. Right. Uh, At the almshouse, you had babies, unwed mothers. Older prostitutes that could no longer apply their trade. The mentally ill, disabled, abandoned children, and abandoned elderly people. And that's who was in there. Interesting place for kids to be raised. The infant mortality rate was 100%. I mean, maybe one lived, but functionally and statistically, it's 100%. Yeah. It doesn't doesn't bode well for Jimmy and Anne either. They played in the mortuary of the Tewksbury Almshouse. That's their playhouse. And they were left pretty much alone. I guess nobody else wanted to be in there. They made it their little playhouse. They would cut pictures out of Godie's Ladies Book of Fancy Dress Ladies. And they mm-hmm. would cut pictures of condemned criminals out of the Police Gazette. Mm-hmm. Only I say they. Annie was not allowed by Jimmy, who was five at this point, to cut the pictures out because she couldn't <laughs> see well and cut all their heads off. And so Jimmy had the scissors that he he had stolen from the doctors, right. <laughs> and he was the one. And they were allowed to leave that stuff up there until 
And so, and it wasn't, they weren't there very long. Mm -mm. And um, unfortunately, Jimmy did die. He was sleeping in the bed next to Anne, and they rolled him out in the middle of the night. And she, I mean, she's blind, and she she feels her way. She feels over, and she doesn't feel him, his bed there. So she feels her way to the morgue, finds his cold body, and touches it, and is just overcome with grief. That's the end of her family. That's it. Mm -hmm. Mom's dead. Sister's adopted out father well who'd want to go back to him anyway if, even if he'd have her which he wouldn't so that's it she's on her own Annie was just inconsolable for about a week and the inmates and the staff were actually kind of rallied around her just a little bit they were a little kinder than they might have been um like the gardener let her cut some of his flowers to, and took her to the grave and let mm-hmm. her put him on there and some of the older ladies, um, one in particular, she had um, a bent spine, and that's pretty much why she was there. The next three and a half years, Maggie Hogan was her name, was the closest thing to a mother or to an advocate she ever had. Maggie Hogan actually bribed or blackmailed, not sure, somebody named Tilly to mm-hmm. read to Annie Sullivan from the newspaper stories, because Annie Sullivan loved stories. And so I don't know if it was blackmail or a promise of helping her escape or what, or but, but Tilly read to Annie Sullivan every night because Maggie Hogan made her. Let's just put it that way. Maggie so, Hogan is a good friend to have. She is a good <laughs> friend to have. Now, she in the next three and a half years, though, she must have been exposed to some horrific things because women in these kind of institutions were just like fish in a barrel to male employees, really. And the mentally ill were untreated they would just go crazy uh-huh. and attack people with iron bars and stuff Ugh, just the hopelessness of it all like the women that had the babies in there knew their babies would die i mean you had to know that yeah. that's like a hundred percent mortality rate and as soon as you had recovered from the birth you were sent to the workhouse so your control over your baby was over done i can't imagine how that didn't make an effect on her she always claimed that it didn't but i think that's just how false. could it not Mm-mm. Those are her formative years. Well, and even Annie had probably been attacked yeah. at some point because that Johanna Donovan mm-hmm. in the fiction had three separate incidents of, of men attacking her. Two unsuccessful eye operations that were performed on Anne while she was living there. I mean, but the fact that she got them actually says something, doesn't it? Yeah, that is true. But there, she, then she was taken to Boston for two more surgeries. Mm-hmm. And then she was placed as a servant in someone's house at 11. But then her eyes got worse, Mm -hmm. and she came back. There was nowhere to go but back. She did not want to go back. No, who would? And even as a servant, if you're in a house where people are treating you nicer, Mm -hmm. to go back to those kind of living conditions, you'd rather be a servant. Well, she heard about a school for the blind. There was a man named Franklin B. Sanborn, who was a friend of Dr. Howe. And Dr. Howe, as you recall from the Helen Keller podcast, was the one that had trained Laura Bridgman, the you know famous deaf and right. blind girl. This tour of well-dressed philanthropists were touring the... Alms house. The alms house. And she ran up into the middle of this group and threw herself at one of the men because she really couldn't discern who was who and said, Mr. Sanborn, Mr. Sanborn, I want to go to school. And so, pretty much daring him to live up to his philanthropic Stop. ideals right. in front of other rich people right right that's awesome she writes later as she wrote about this period that she had she knew the story of cinderella and never doubted that there was a fairy godmother somewhere that would someday free her and turn her desolation into a kingdom of delight and most of us waited for the prince and i guess mr <laughs> sanborn was a prince but he was regarded as a fairy godmother i was gonna say he's really definitely the fairy godmother in this story yeah sure. so Anne gets to go to the perkins school for the blind can you imagine going from the alms house to a place of stability where there's food and there's comfort and there's shelter that she was there for six years at perkins and i know she chafed at the rules 
Yeah. Because really, she'd been wandering for, you know, all her life, really. Her mother never was able to discipline her. No. And then she went to the almshouse where no one cared what she did all day. And so now here she's at a place where they have rules about when you get up, when you go to bed, when you eat meals. But just not even just the rules. I mean, just general um, behavior in polite society yeah. is something that she needed to learn because that hasn't been anything that she's been exposed to in her life so far. Well, she was placed with the younger students at first because she knew nothing. Really, she'd never been to school before. Mm-hmm. Like some people who hadn't been to school that we had talked about before, they, they had received an education at home. No, right. no. No education. No. No reading. Nothing. nothing. She was a very, very difficult person. You know, many teachers there had written about how she was belligerent mm-hmm. and she was angry and she would ridicule others as less intelligent, but then simultaneously be mad that they wouldn't be friends with her. Mm-hmm. So it's just a very well, she's, contradictory character. I mean, this is, think about any adolescent, you know, they're still learning how to get along in adolescent society. Yeah. She's street smart. Yeah. But she's, <laughs> yeah, she knows a little more than she should know about some a subjects. A lot of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So I can see why anger and would come out and if that that's how she's been treated. That's how, I mean, that's all she knows. So. She had really no kind words her whole life. Mm-mm. So, yeah, I'm surprised she got this far. That's yeah. a testament to her yeah. innate oh, abilities, definitely. I think. Mr. A, the director of the school, he made a point of taking people to different experiences. Wealthy people would give tickets to things like, Andy saw Gilbert and Sullivan. Mm-hmm. Um, she saw the singer Lillian Russell. I mean, she was exposed to a lot of cool things that obviously weren't there before. They, she learned practical housekeeping, and they wanted to teach her sewing. They're trying to ready her for the real world. Right. But somehow she'd just be Nelly No on everything, <laughs> it seems like. <laughs> but she's no. bright. Yeah. And she's learning, and she's learning the manual alphabet, and she learned to communicate. With the finger alphabet. Finger alphabet. Laura Bridgman is still there. In fact, she's in the cottage. There was a cottage system at the school where there'd be a house mother, and then there'd be six to eight girls there. One of the fellow students there was Laura Bridgman, and Annie Sullivan used to spend hours finger spelling with her. I think she kind of felt a refuge or whatever, and that's where she learned how to communicate. There was a problem uh, in the summers, though, because no one knew where to send her, because the the director, quite rightly, did not want to send her back to Tewksbury, but the school closed for the summer. I, you know, what mm-hmm. was one to do? And he was a single man. <laughs> you can't, can't have, have a teenage girl living no. with you. Her house mother, her name Sophia Hopkins, provided a home for her in the summers, and it was just wonderful. It was like her first taste of just genteel living. Her brother was a grocer. I mean, mm-hmm. not so genteel, but gentle. Normal. Well, normal life. Typical. He let her go on the rounds, and she just loved to make up the packages and take them up to the door, and she just loved all that. And then she ran into this mysterious hermit called Captain Dad on the beach, and he would tell her all kinds of stories, and uh-huh. she, it was just very, like, interesting. I don't know. I thought that was kind of No, cool. that is. It's so far removed from the home life that she had known yeah. heretofore. But it was just about now, though, um, there is some debate as to where she picked up the name Mansfield. Some sources, including the American Federation for the Blind website, mm-hmm. say that it's on her birth certificate. Right. And we're saying her birth, they said that her birth certificate says Joanna Mansfield Sullivan. A couple of the resources I found, this one in particular, Beyond the Miracle Worker, which is all about Ann Sullivan, kind of talks about how, let me just read this to you. Perhaps the greatest indication of Sullivan's claim to a new and emerging self was her adoption of a new name while at Perkins. Other girls at Perkins used three names in formal circumstances. It signified refinement, sophistication, and some kind of lineage. During these years, the orphaned Annie, without any extended family to claim her, read about Mansfield Hall, an Irish baronial site. It must have seemed a perfect fit, noble, Irish, and literary-sounding. She then became Annie Mansfield Sullivan, in one move, setting aside one past and claiming another.
So here she is inventing herself. Well, she graduated as the valedictorian of the class. I know. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. She, she had to drive to just be equal to them when she got there. She knew nothing, and then she graduated valedictorian. That sounds a lot like someone else we know that's going to come along later. Helen Keller came from knowing nothing oh, yes. to surpassing people yes. in such a short period of time. So... Here's the thing. Now what? Now what? Now what? What jobs were there for a person of limited sight? No family to go to. A lot of the other students could just revert back to being, you know, aunt in residence, spinster in residence. Some of them left to get married, which everyone was very happy, you know, to see happen. The director, Mr. A, offered to send her to teacher's college at his own expense. Mm -hmm. A normal school is what they called it. It doesn't normal. mean normal yeah. as in we can we right. can see. It means right. normal. That's just what they call teacher's right. colleges. But she rejected it, ironically. She said it was a life uninteresting, and the results are very far from being commensurate with the effort. Ironic. So the fall afterwards, Mr. A got some letters from a man named Mr. Keller asking for a governess for his little daughter. And Michael A just didn't know what to do with Annie Sullivan, really. Mm -hmm. He... He was despairing. He wanted to see her in a good position, but he just was not sure what on earth would be good for her. And he, the letters went back and forth for a while. Annie's just reluctant. He sees it as her only chance of a future. So she agreed, finally. And one last eye surgery she had before she went down there. And so this is, okay, we talked in the Helen Keller podcast about how she appeared and saw her new student or whatever. Right. But what we didn't talk about is... Okay, so she's still in pain from eye surgery. You know, mm. pain management was not... Not, no. Not, and surgical skills were not what they are today, either. So, the, her only... Okay, so her eye is still in horrible pain. She calls it flaming pain from the eye mm. surgery. The sunlight's hurting her. The soot and cinders from the train is hurting her. Her shoes... Someone has bought her some shoes, but they're too small, and so they're the only pair of shoes she has, so she's wearing felt carpet slippers, mm. so she feels embarrassed about that. It's the first time she's ever been to train... And she's far away from everything. She, she's never left Massachusetts, and here she's going to Alabama. So there were both blind and deaf schools within 170 miles, which I didn't know this, of Helen Keller's house. Mm -hmm. But her parents refused to send her there because after the Civil War, a lot of um, welfare-type institutions in the South were just really going downhill and falling on hard times. So Anne Sullivan was actually seen as quite a step up from for Helen Keller from these institutions. institutions sure. And then Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Keller, she admits later, although she never would let on at the time, admits that she was completely shocked when she saw Annie's eye because it had really swollen and was mm -hmm. really horrible. And they're like, she's thinking, what? What they, they sent, sent us? us? <laughs> Here's something about her education that made her very fit to be Helen Keller's teacher. In addition to the, I mean, in addition to um, just about everything yeah, else. <laughs> but in addition to the finger spelling, right. she knew how to be disobedient and stubborn to a teacher. Mm -hmm. She knew why she did it, right. and she knew how to resist instruction. Yep, that sounds an awful lot like um, Helen Keller. Keller. I think it was the best. Educational assistance that she could have gotten. Yep. But you know who started to try to take all the credit? Mr. A. And he did help her out quite a bit, but... He wanted all the credit for the Perkins Institution. Yeah. And he basically said that he had given her all the tools needed and blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, you know, the only teacher training she ever had was she was allowed to read the books of Dr. Howe in his Education of mm -hmm. Laura Bridgman. And she was reluctant to share the information about her successes and how she got them. And that might have been part of why. They had a very weird relationship, those guys. Yeah. With Mr. A and Annie. That was like flirty and daughterly and scoldy and grumpy and sarcastic. I don't mm -hmm. know how to say it. was well, just like... I mean, she's 21 when she goes to live with yeah. the Kellers. She wouldn't be where she is without him. But I can see why she's wanting to sit off on her own and not give him... 
Yeah, I see that. And as Helen got notoriety and became more famous, she started to be, maybe only in her own mind, but maybe for real, she started to be regarded as some kind of just accessory. Like, mm. here's Helen and that one girl that does things in her hand. The one that's going to tell Helen what we say. Her translator. Yeah, it just oh, started to but, be kind of bad. And, you know, she had issues, too. She couldn't see very well. She was a you, disabled person. Exactly. We think of Helen Keller. And they think she's over, overcome. But Ann Sullivan had her own luggage strapped to her back as far as things mm-hmm. that she's having to overcome. And we just don't really ever think about that. So this Frost King episode that we talked about in the Helen Keller episode, basically that's the straw that broke her from Mr. A almost forever, I mm-hmm. think. That relationship was kind of over. He felt betrayed. He felt like she was purposely trying to take down his school, which is, you know, the least mm-hmm. thing of her no. mind. And so he started writing things where he believed that Ann Sullivan was merely parroting Dr. Howe's example of Laura Bridgman, and she had no skill at all, which is just horrible. Like, thanks for being my friend, dirty man. (laughs) Um, So along comes Alexander Graham Bell, who actually saw this opportunity, Helen's death too. Mm -hmm. So he, in contrast to Mr. A, worked to improve her professional stature. Like, he would talk her up to everyone. Look how awesome this Miss Sullivan is. Mm-hmm. You know, look what she has done with this woman. And, and that's got to feel good after just being talked bad about by someone you thought was your friend. And they went off with Alexander Graham Bell for a year and a half, really, under his guidance. Right. Alexander Graham Bell logically argued that if Helen Keller went to a deaf school, well, she'd need an interpreter. And if she went to a blind school, well... She'd need an interpreter, so why don't we just send her to regular old school? And, you know, they made a a show of applying to Helen Keller, but you know who everybody relied on to make a decision for Helen Keller's education? Not Helen Keller. Ann Sullivan. Sullivan. She really had some power. You know... Even so, she had some power, but wealthy friends made a fund, and it was called the Fund for the Use and Disbursement of the Twins. The Twins, yeah. So, (laughs) my goodness, she was never her own self. But the financial straits really hit hard. They had this one wealthy benefactor. He's called the Sugar King. <laughs> yeah, That's Mr. That's the kind John. of benefactor I'd like. I know, sugar the Sugar King. And the Sugar King um, always promised that he'd mention them in his will, and then he died, and he hadn't done it. And so there was some income they were counting on, and it just didn't, it wasn't gone. And far from being gone, the Sugar King's heirs demanded that Helen Keller's dad pay back this $15,000 that John Spaulding had lent him. I mean, it was bad. Yeah. It was a big crisis. And only 10 years out of Tewksbury, Ann Sullivan was panic-stricken. Sure. And Helen really didn't, I don't think, understand the gravity of the whole thing. Like, oh, well, you know, things would be okay. But, like, Ann Sullivan really lost her crap. Well, she's looking at at, at being poor again. It, yeah. Yeah, it's and Helen's fun. never been, so she doesn't know. Well, and now that she wasn't Helen's actual teacher anymore, but only some kind of interpreter, what position did she have? You know, what security did she have? Right. And so there's a financial thing that started off this emotional roller coaster thing. But, you know, Helen made sure to tell everyone that, and I'll quote Helen right here. She said, I consider my crown of success is the happiness and pleasure my victory has brought, dear teacher. In fact, I feel my success is hers. She's an inspiration to me. I really like Helen a lot. She's very loyal. (laughs) She is. But, you know, this made Perkins angry yes and it made perkins angry and it made their current school angry 
Um, Sullivan considered herself Helen Keller's guardian, and the school considered themselves her guardian, and that's that custody battle we were talking about. Right. And so, goodness, all these fights don't add to her, her mental state at all. And when, at 31 years of age, her eyes started to get bad again, this is when she said to her friends that she will not be operated on again, and she will not live as a blind person. (laughs) So everyone has put her on suicide watch. Yeah, sure, absolutely. And even Helen Keller, who never recognizes bad behavior, poor behavior, or sadness anywhere she sees it, really, knows something is desperately wrong and keeps telling Mm -hmm. people that teacher's not well. She's gone into a decline. A decline. There's six months of depression. Depression. Yeah. Yeah. Clinical. mm -hmm. Yeah. And she had that throughout her whole life. Yes. And you had a theory, Susan, that it was post-traumatic stress disorder. It could have been. I mean, she certainly had a very traumatic upbringing. Yeah. It's not something you can just get over. I think... I no. think you're right. I think you're right. No, and it, it would follow her around. Well, so so Helen had become her whole life. So where was Annie's life, I think, is where it all stemmed from. Right. That's a typical spouse <laughs> Well, and reaction. I hate to compare them to spouses because that's not the relationship that they had, but it was a very symbiotic relationship. You know, they both gained from it. But where did where did Helen stop and where did Annie begin? Yeah. When Helen goes to Radcliffe, Annie had a really tough job, I think. Not only did, was she the translator, but honestly, I think she had to learn everything right ahead of Helen so that mm. she could describe it properly. And no one is giving her the credit. She went to school, too. Yeah, she does not get a Radcliffe degree, although she gets a Radcliffe education. Helen was very, 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 very concerned that Annie was ruining her eyesight because she couldn't see past the end of her nose at this point. Mm -hmm. And so this old boarding house friend, Lenore Smith, also learned to fingerspell. But more importantly, she introduced her to a man named John Macy. John Albert Macy. He helped Helen edit her autobiography, her first book that she writes. But he also, in the... In the course of things, because their life, Anne and Helen's lives are so interchanged, he he does fall in love with Anne, and they do get married. That had to be very blissful for her. That's true. It's her first real romance, completely. He really took care of her, and really, if you think about it, before in her life, who has ever taken care of Anne Sullivan? Nobody. So before they were married, Mr. Macy threatened to print on the wedding invitation, subject to change without notice, because she kept going back and forth. Yes, no, yes, no. I think Mr. Macy's kind of funny. He is kind of funny. You know what? His family later told everyone that he actually wanted to marry Helen. But I think it's sour grapes, and I think it's based on what happened later. At this time, a man who married a woman would confidently expect to have control of her finances. Right. But but Annie and Helen both had circumvented that whole process ahead of time, and Annie had basically given the husband's part in the finance to Helen. Like, he, she divided everything with Helen. They'd right. bought a house together, a house, yep. and then if Annie were to die, her half is Helen's half. Right. And so here he is marrying her, and he has no financial control of his wife's property at all. Right. It's, it's legally tied I, up away hate, from him. Again, we hate, I hate to compare it to a marriage, but Anne and, and Helen, they do have, it's a very unique union that they have. Mm-hmm. And that is just another example of it. Okay, so the first few years of the marriage, another idyllic period. You know, they have livestock and pets and a lovely garden, and it's all going well. Everybody's writing profitably Mm -hmm. with great creativity. Right. That it just kind of descends from there. It just... As of about 1914, so we're looking at about mm, nine years after the relationship, it's gotten to the point where John Macy's asking for a divorce. Mm -hmm. And here's a telling vision of the triangle that we're facing here. So... 
He asked for a divorce, and Annie said no. And Helen said no. And Kate <laughs> Keller said no. But they felt completely entitled to write him. Your attitude toward teacher is hard and unreasonable. At this point, Anne and Helen are out on the lecture circuit. Yeah. They are traveling. They Anne is speaking for Helen on stage. You know, and John is left back home in Rentham. It is a seriously weird triangle, if you think about it. It is unusual. It is, Yeah, it's it's not like you have a child and together and you're uh-huh. living as a family of right. three. It's very unconventional. There's nothing to model it on. They don't have any, any people to look up no, to for how to no, run such not. a thing. Anne had fallen down some stairs and there was a brief reconciliation afterward. But really, there was a final separation in Annie, which I'm so sad she did this because this would be a really good document to have. But right after they separated, Annie burnt her diary completely. Mm. And it went all the way back, all the way back to Alabama, right when she first, Mm -hmm. this was a very old diary. She burnt it up. I'm so sad about that. We would have loved to have that. And it turns out that Mr. Macy had a bit of an alcohol problem. And so now as I look back on that, that probably contributed to a little bit of a jumpy relationship anyway. You know, if Andy remembered her father and his abuses, I can't imagine that would have been comfortable either. So who's to say what the reason is? None of us were there, but the triangle was probably hard and the... Just the, the, he's not the man in his house. He is the, in fact, okay, in several censuses, okay, so they would write down the role of everybody in the house, and Mm -hmm. in one, right when they first got married, John was the head of household, Mm -hmm. and Annie was the wife, and Helen was the boarder. Oh. (laughs) But ten years later, Helen is head of house. Uh-huh. Annie is teacher, and John is listed as a boarder. Uh-huh. Okay, so that's the relationship they now have. It's like so really just yeah. even those little words yep. written by the census taker. Really, it's probably an unsupportable situation for him. Okay, so about now, either Annie is diagnosed incorrectly with tuberculosis, or, or she really yeah. has tuberculosis. Depending on your source. Depending on your source. Now, that doesn't necessarily really matter because she goes to Lake Placid to the sanatorium anyway. Mm-hmm. So right. she's there. There she is. With Polly Thompson, who has come on as, as an additional partner in their relationship. She was a nurse. Yeah, she was a nurse. And it was like bandied about that she was the secretary to Helen, but really she was the nurse of Annie Sullivan. Uh-huh. And even then it was kind of um, not talked about when you had tuberculosis. So, right. you know, it was said that you were going to Lake Placid. So people would know what it is, but you didn't ever say what it actually was. They weren't going skiing. No. no. <laughs> and I will tell you that Annie hated the sanatorium completely. It had this regimen that she hated, and she hated being bundled up and sat in a lounge chair in the frosty air, and she just hated everything about it. And she broke out. She broke free with Polly Thompson <laughs> and caught a boat to Puerto Rico <laughs> for nicer climb. That's where I go. Why not? Well, it was, sure. it was just lovely. There's rum in Puerto Rico. <laughs> what do they so, got in Lake Placid? Tea and all that healthy stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Her writings in this time period are so happy. There's a pineapple, I guess, bush. It's not really a tree. There's a, there's pineapples growing in her yard. Uh-huh. There's fruit trees growing in her yard. Grapefruits and oranges just right outside. She bought a car. She hired a driver. Uh, well, that's good. But her letters became increasingly, you know, calmer about her impending death as she saw it. Like, well, you know, this is, we all have to go sometime or whatever. And of course, Helen go, Keller. I'm going to go in paradise. <laughs> yeah. Helen Keller back home became frantic mm-hmm. about this. But this is when, when the cat's away, the mice will play because this, this is when is Helen had a boyfriend. This is right. The Peter mm-hmm. Fagan 
time, a short period of time. And she came back to the United States eventually mm-hmm. when she felt cured, or maybe she was never sick, maybe she was just run down. And I can imagine how a long stint in Puerto Rico, laying on a lounge chair and driving around, looking at scenery, would make you feel better. Yeah. It would, yeah. If it was just an emotional breakdown. That's true. So this is right when they turned to vaudeville. Well, in the first year, Annie was so sick with pneumonia, it kind of ate up all their profits. And simultaneously, John kept writing, asking for money, asking for money, asking for money. <laughs> and guess who gave him the final boot? Was it his wife, Annie? No, it was Helen Keller. Helen Keller finally said, I'm making this money for Annie, not to support you. You need to be a man. You need to go out. I'm paraphrasing yeah. here. Helen you Keller to- is saying man up. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but you need to be a man. You need to get gainful employment and yeah. show your friends that you're not a parasite. Right. As I believe you are. <laughs> yeah. Or something. I mean. <gasps> That's the second Graham version, but. I kind of like oh, yeah. it. Well, and no one ever made either of them as happy as the other one. I mean, they're deeply dependent on each other. And, you know, I think that you're right that it was kind of like a marriage. Mm-hmm. So Annie's health is deteriorating. And this is about the time that Annie and Helen begin their work for the American Foundation for the Blind, which, as we said in the Helen Keller podcast, this is really a defining moment for them. And, and they've really finally found their niche of organization that they can support and travel around and speak on behalf of. Annie was almost becoming fully blind here toward the end. And Helen had a hard time reconciling herself to Annie's blindness. Honestly, she she just knew that Annie had been her link to the sighted world all along. Mm-hmm. And she just really... Which is kind of interesting because Annie's really... Her sight has never been spectacular. Yeah. yeah. We had talked earlier about how Annie had gotten a Radcliffe education and never got a Radcliffe degree. In 1931, Temple University in Philadelphia said that they would like to recognize Anne and Helen's um, achievements with honorary degrees. Now, Helen accepted hers, but Annie actually refused it. And a year later, Helen, as well as other people, said, Annie, it's a degree. Please accept it for the work that you've done. And she does accept it. So Anne does get a college degree from Temple University. Finally. So Annie began to write um, a memoir entitled Foolish Remarks of a Foolish Woman. Very self-deprecating. And some of it was pretty bitter. Let me quote right here. It says, Why, O curious ones, do you stop at my door today and peer into my face wonderingly? You've passed me with miserly glances for 60 years and longer. Why did you not ask your questions before my heart was cold, my hair gray? Time for confidence is past. The most safe abode for my secret is where the darkness shelters on. I'm as indifferent as a stone. Love has betrayed me. Friendship is a broken reed. Life has pierced me in a thousand ways, but the wounds are all dry. I think I've forgotten how they used to bleed. So sad. Finally, after 42 years of living together, Annie finally told Helen for the very first time about her experiences at Tewksbury. And Helen, after she wrote that she had wept and wept for a considerable amount of time, finally felt a sense of balance because she felt like she had understood a lot of things about Annie, like her behavior and her peculiarities and her moods and her, you know, depression that she had never really been able to fathom before. It was kind of um, almost like a deathbed confession from Annie, but it seemed to bring peace to both of them to finally have that air cleared in that way. After so long, anything you can think of has laid Annie low. I mean, from cataracts to pneumonia to influenza to just anything you can think of hit Annie. She had the poorest of luck, and often she would tease Helen about having a cast iron stomach with barrel staffs around it, and Annie's was made of glass. (laughs) So... Um, yeah, Helen had a very stout constitution and had ever since she was a little, you know, a little kid. But 
those around Annie knew they had to start making plans for what would happen to Helen after Annie's inevitable death. It was, um, I think that must be heartbreaking to have to think of and plan of so carefully, but, but they did it and Annie made a will and they had a, a lot of time together. But in October in 1916, Annie finally did fall into a coma and she and Helen were separated forever. That's very sad. I think what is so impressive about Annie Sullivan is that she came from a place of such negativity, really, and she devoted her whole life, her whole entire life, to someone else, and that is so rare, and I do not know that we will see her like again. Thank you for listening. For show notes and links to the things we talked about today, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at The History Chicks with With an X. X. Or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like us in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. The music in our podcast comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com.